Amen. Thank you, Tanner and Hunter. Tanner grew up in this church since he was a little tight. Were you born at this church? Is that right? Just about. His folks are here today. I know they're proud. And I got to perform Tanner and Deanna's wedding ceremony in our beautiful chapel last October. Is that right, October? It's just been neat to see how the Lord has used them and, and brought them together and blessed them. And to, to live in Nashville, the, the talent that we have in this town. Hunter graduated from Belmont, right? And then UNT, North Texas too, with a master's. I mean, he can absolutely shred the piano. He's just amazing talent. So we're blessed indeed here to have uh, the people that we have leading our worship. Today, I'm so excited to continue our series in John. This is a great, great text today in John chapter seven. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter seven. We're gonna see this growing controversy, this growing tension in the gospel of John over the Jesus controversy. Here's this poor man from Nazareth, a carpenter's son from up north in the region of Galilee who started a big scandal when in Jerusalem a year ago, he healed a lame man who was laying by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And it was on a Sabbath day, remember, and the Jewish authorities took this opportunity not to marvel that a lame man was, was healed, but instead to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by doing work on Sunday, on Saturday, the Sabbath day. And what was Jesus' response? Do you remember? He said, yeah, I am working because my Father is working in heaven. If he wasn't, the earth would collapse. So I work just like my father works, because we are one. And that claim to divinity started this whole conspiracy to kill Jesus. They concluded that he must die for the blasphemy of, of claiming divinity. And, and you see that they missed the boat completely, the Jewish authorities who, who said, we can't have this guy causing trouble. He's disrupting our comfortable way of life. But the rumors about Jesus began to spread, and, and, and soon he gained a huge following. We saw in chapter 6 how he fed the 5,000 and how his fame continued to spread. But then last week, we saw a watershed moment in Jesus' ministry where hundreds and hundreds of his followers fall away from him. They decide, yeah, this whole Christianity thing's not really for me. This whole eating the body and, and drinking the blood, that's, that's, that's just too far, that's too offensive. And they fall away and they abandon him in droves. And that was all up in Galilee, remember? Jesus hadn't been back down to Jerusalem since he healed the man in chapter 5. But here in chapter 7, he makes his return to the big city for the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. It's called Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot in Hebrew, and, and Sukkot are the tents, they're, they're the, the little tabernacles that the Israelites dwelled in when they were in the wilderness, wandering from place to place for 40 years. They, they built these tabernacle structures, these tents called Sukkot. And the festival had, had another purpose. The, the, the first purpose was to remember God's provision in the wilderness and how God took care of the Israelites as they wandered by sending them manna, bread from heaven, by sending them water from the rock, by sending them quail to eat when they got sick of the manna. 
And it's, the second purpose was it was a harvest festival. Sukkot to this day is celebrated in the fall, late October. And it's a time to thank God for his bountiful provision in the lives of God's people. What's so interesting here is that in this chapter, the, the Israelites are celebrating God's presence among them in, in the temple. They're, they're gathering at the temple. They're commanded to make a pilgrimage from all over Judea up to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and they're celebrating the fact that God dwelt among them before in a tent, in the tabernacle as they were in the wilderness when they all lived in Sukkot. And what's so interesting about this is that as, as they celebrate these places where God's presence dwelt, they don't understand that God's glorious dwelling was never fully manifested in the tabernacle nor in the temple. What they're missing is that they were both shadows of something better to come. Both the temple and the tabernacle pointed forward to a day when God would dwell not only in the midst of his people, but in the hearts of all believers. After a new covenant relationship between God and humanity had been made possible by the removal of the barrier that sin had put up between us and God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The great irony throughout this chapter is that God's people missed the great revelation. They missed his full presence among them in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's stand if you're able to out of honor of God's word. It's a long passage, so stay with me. Uh, John 7, chapter 7, verses 1 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Ironic question. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who speaks, who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? 
The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Whew. We're not going to take 40 verses every week. Don't worry if your knees are hurting. We'll take it a little slower next week. You know, I wrote an article for this month's Herald, which I'm sure you all read voraciously. Brad, I know you got a couple copies. I know Brad loves the Herald. Called Seekers and Skeptics. When I was looking at these texts for the the month of May from the end of chapter 6 through the beginning of of chapter 8, there's a theme that emerges that these people are trying to figure out who Jesus of Nazareth really is. You might just think, yeah, yeah, he's the son of God, he's the Messiah, we've heard all that before, we're Christians, we we get that. But here's the thing, do we really live every moment of every day as if Jesus is Lord of all? Do we really base every decision, every conversation, every action on this fact? In the article in the Herald, I mentioned that we all have a, a foundational set of core beliefs on which we build our entire lives. If you really drill down deep enough into what someone says they believe, eventually you find the basis on which they stand, on which they they base every decision, every action in their lives on. The way Rick Warren phrases this is that 
we're all betting our lives on something. I like that. We're all betting our lives on something. And the thing we have to realize is that there really is no empirical proof for these bedrock foundational kinds of beliefs, right? I've, I've heard people say, you know, things like, there are no moral absolutes. Everyone should define his or her own truth for themselves. And I say, wait, 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 I can, I can, I can make arguments about that, but I can't like show them the data to prove them wrong, right? I can give them my logical argument for why I don't agree with that, but in the end, I'm not gonna convince them with some kind of video evidence, right? I've heard other people say there can't just be one true religion. Again, I can, I can bring my logical arguments as to why I think there is only one true religion, but in the end, I don't have empirical data to show them, to, to prove that Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life. The point is that we're all either taking a leap of faith or a leap of doubt. It's a leap, either way. We're all betting our lives on something. Some will bet rightly, some will bet wrongly. And that's fine, right? No big deal. I love the way Fran Shaka, my, my Bible teacher in Alabama says it. He says, this is America. We're all free to believe whatever we want. You, you're free to have your truth and you're free to have your truth. That's fine, it's America. Until we die, <laughs> then all that matters is what's true. It's good, isn't it? All that matters when we die is what's true. What are you betting your life on? My prayer is that after the next two Sundays, we'll all be able to look inwardly and honestly at what it is that we're basing our lives on. Examine our own core beliefs. Are we missing the boat on, on the truth? Are we trying to, to build our lives on the shifting sand of this world? Or are we deeply rooted in the bedrock of Jesus Christ? That's where I want us to go over the next two weeks. It's easy to miss that boat, even if you have close proximity to Jesus. In, in chapter seven, it starts out with the disbelief of his own brothers. These, these guys are eating and sleeping and breathing next to Jesus, and they still don't get it. We know that he's already been rejected in his hometown. Remember in chapter four, verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Nazareth, he was persona non grata. And then he was rejected in Judea. We saw that in verse one here in chapter seven. He could not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the, the circle of rejection is, is complete with the members of his own nuclear family not believing in him. It sounds like typical brothers, right? They're egging him on, verse three. His brothers say, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly if you do these things, show yourself to the world. You know, that wouldn't sound so bad if it wasn't for verse five, which shows us why they said it. It's because they did not believe in him. You know, these are the biological children of, of Joseph and Mary. They're, they're technically Jesus's half brothers. And, and like typical brothers, they're just daring him to go to the Sukkot festival in Jerusalem and show his magic tricks to the world there. 
They're basically saying like my kids do to each other. Oh yeah, prove it. Prove it. If you're really the Messiah. And what's crazy is they're basically projecting onto Jesus what they would do if they were in his shoes. Oh man, I would, I would just go down to Jerusalem and the big festival, there's thousands of Jews gathered there and I'd bang, 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 I'd do some magic and everybody would say, oh, this guy's awesome. He must be the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. You guys are, are, are not understanding how God works. They're thinking in a worldly way. They're not thinking in God's way, which is best. They're, they're not thinking according to God's timing. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And what's cool about this is only in this place in John does, does Jesus use the word kairos for time. Kairos in Greek means not like TikTok time, like that's called chronos in Greek. That's a measurement of extent of time. Kairos means when the opportune time had come. It has to do with fruit being ripe, when the time was ripe for the plucking. I love that image, it's a cool word. We don't have anything like that in English. When the time was ripe, when the time was ripe, it's opportunity. Jesus' brothers could go anytime, but Jesus must wait for the opportune time according to God's timing. So the brothers and, and Joseph and Mary go on down to, to Jerusalem for Sukkot, and then when the time is ripe, Jesus slips down there incognito. Apart from his family and his disciples, he can kind of get around. And everyone in Jerusalem is wondering, will he show? Will he actually come to the festival or will he stay in hiding? And behind closed doors, people are having these arguments. The seekers and the skeptics are debating the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Is he who he says he is or is he an imposter? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? And at this point, Jesus shows up in the temple, in the middle of the festival, and he's teaching with the ultimate authority because he's teaching the very scriptures which he himself breathed into existence. He's teaching like no one else on earth has ever taught before because he's teaching his own words fulfilled in his own body before the hearers in the temple. It's an incredible opportunity that's happened. The people marvel, and they say, we've never heard anything like this. So he answers them in verse 16. He says, my teaching's not mine, but his who sent me. And then he outs the Jewish leaders. He says, these guys are trying to kill me. <laughs> and they say, what, us? No, he, he's crazy. He must have a demon. So Jesus ramps it up a notch in verse 28, and he makes it abundantly clear what he's saying. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. The, the drama just heightens here. He, he, he draws the line, and, and we're building to this moment in, in verse 37, where it's the climax of the whole narrative. 
And, and before we get there, it's really important that we understand what happened at Sukkot in Jerusalem. We know from the rabbinical literature that the, the whole festival was centered around a daily ritual that every morning in the temple, all the thousands of Jews would gather into the courtyards of the temple and they would bring a, a citrus fruit in their left hand. They would bring a mixture of branches in their right hand and they would wave the branches. It was a symbol of God's blessing and God's provision over them. And when everything was in order, the high priest would come out and address the crowd and they would sing a psalm together and he would take this enormous golden pitcher and he would raise it up and the people would cheer. And then he would lead them in procession out of the temple and out of the city walls to the pool of Siloam where the, the high priest would take this massive golden pitcher and he'd dip it into the pool of Siloam. And, and what's so cool is when he did that, when he dipped that in, the people would recite the beautiful words of Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then the whole crowd would process back up to the temple mount where they would reassemble around the altar, this massive stone furnace basically for sacrificing animals. And the high priest would, would circle one time around the altar and he would climb up to this platform above the altar and he would pour the water out on the altar as the crowd cheered and sang. This ritual, daily ritual at Sukkot was supposed to remind the people of how God provided water from a rock. He poured out water from a rock in the wilderness as the Israelites wandered on their way to the promised land. That water saved them, or at least it, it helped them to survive. It did not help them thrive. On the seventh day though, on the last day of Sukkot, this is where the, the highest drama occurs. The high priest, when he arrived back at the temple with the other priests, he would circle the altar, not once, but seven times, like marching around the, the city of Jericho. And on the sixth go around, another priest would join him with the ceremonial wine. And together they would climb to the tower above the altar and, and there was a pause at the top there and the people would wait in fervent expectation. And then the priest would raise the golden pitcher and, and the crowd would go nuts. It was considered to be the height of joy in an Israelite's life if they could just see the water and wine being poured out onto the altar at the last day of Sukkot. Many scholars believe that it was at this precise moment when the priest had climbed to the top of the altar and they paused and the crowd was waiting with bated breath that Jesus decides it's the perfect moment to stand up and exclaim the words of verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. What an amazingly powerful moment. We should be moved by the emotion and it's the perfect psychological moment in the life of Israel, in the worship life of Israel, combined with the perfect words and the perfect symbol. 
Do you know what it's like to be really thirsty? Do you know what it's like to be thirsty unto death? I don't. I honestly don't. You know, we, we live in a, a privileged society where even the, the poorest among us have access, usually, to clean drinking water. It's not like living in the Middle East where Jesus lived in a very arid climate. It's not like living, I've known stories of, of women and men in Africa and other places that have had to walk for miles each day both ways to find clean water each day and draw water at a well. Water is so readily available to us that most of us don't know what it's like to be thirsty unto death. But we do all have a spiritual thirst deep within our souls that I can relate to. Jesus isn't talking about giving us the water of survival like he did for the Israelites in the wilderness. He's talking about giving us living water that helps us to thrive and to flourish by satisfying the dead and dry parts of our soul that cry out for living water. The problem is that we try to satisfy our soul's thirst with everything under the sun besides Jesus. One of my favorite verses is Jeremiah 2.13. God gives this picture to Jeremiah of, of two sins that the people have committed. He says, my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's evil, he says, when we try to build our own lives and satisfy the thirst with something that will not satisfy us. That's evil. It's fruitless and it doesn't help us thrive or flourish. Not only do we forsake God, but then he says we also try to make our own cisterns that are inevitably broken and cannot satisfy us, but only leave us thirstier than when we began. The invitation that Jesus proclaims here, come to me, all you are thirsty, and drink. It's for all of us, for every person, Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone. So what does that look like to come to Jesus and drink? What does that mean to come to Jesus and drink? C.S. Lewis captures it perfectly in one of his books uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, the, the Silver Chair. Jill is this girl who's lost in the woods and she sees a massive lion in the woods so she runs the other way as fast and as far as she can and she runs so hard that she becomes thirsty unto death even. She's about to collapse from thirst when she hears a brook gurgling by and she finds the brook and she's about to go down to it and she sees the same massive lion sitting next to the stream. So she backs away slowly, and the lion says, are you not thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. He says, then drink. She says, may I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. 
the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I, I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. When we come to Christ, we come on his terms. In fact, we come to die. Our lives are swallowed up by his grace and glory so that it is no longer we who live for ourselves, but Christ who lives in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Then we are able to fulfill what Jesus says in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, not one river, but multiple rivers of living water. The cold, refreshing water that we receive in Christ becomes an overflowing fountain in our own souls. You know what a satisfying life looks like? One where you become a blessing to everyone that you encounter. One where the grace and love of Jesus Christ flows from your soul into the lives of others. I pray for my kids every day that they would be a blessing to everyone that they come in contact with. That they would bless their friends, their teachers, the cafeteria workers, their uh, coaches, their art teacher, everybody that they come in contact with. Because that's a life worth living. It's a life of flourishing. And it can only happen through the overflow of the Holy Spirit in your life. So are you truly satisfied with the water that allows you to thrive like this? Or are you trying to build your own cisterns to carry water of survival to just get you through each day, just getting by, not really even caring whether you're a blessing to others or not? I'm gonna close with this amazing picture. During the, the desert wanderings that the festival of Sukkot was supposed to portray, Moses was commanded to strike a rock when the people were thirsty, and out of it came water for the people to survive. And this was actually a picture of Jesus, which is why John tells us in verse 39, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Jesus had not yet been glorified by being lifted up on a cross to atone for the sins of the world and then be resurrected again on the third day. This all had to happen before the Holy Spirit would come to indwell the hearts of people in God's new covenant. So in the wilderness, the first time Moses was commanded to, to hit the rock, but the second time the Lord did this same miracle, he commanded Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses was frustrated with the whiny Israelites and so he whacked the rock anyway. Moses paid a dear price for that. That ended up being a grievous error. For, for that error, he was not allowed to enter the promised land. That always seemed really harsh to me. I thought, that's like a tough punishment, God. Why would you not allow him to enter the promised land for hitting the rock? And then I found out that it was a picture of Christ that God was telling. Moses probably never suspected that he was confusing God's story. But we know that Christ was only struck not twice, but once. Here we see God's ultimate provision and grace. By giving Jesus Christ to us, we can have overflowing fountains of grace and living water in our lives. Will you receive it today? Will you come and drink on God's own terms? Will you scoop and drink deeply of the living water, the most refreshing water you've ever tasted, and see your life turned into a fire hydrant of God's love and grace overflowing into a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this beautiful picture of provision and grace that you give us in the wilderness of this world. God, I praise you that in the dry and parched parts of our souls that you come and, and slake our thirst in a way that not only quenches us forever, but allows us to quench others' thirst as well. God, I pray that you would turn us into fire hydrants of your grace. May your Holy Spirit overflow into the lives of our friends, our families, our coworkers, every woman we come in contact with, that we would be a blessing as we learn to thrive and flourish as you made us to, not just getting by each day, not just surviving. God, I pray that these high school seniors that are beginning the next chapter of their lives would not just survive the next chapter, whether that's college or vocational school or whatever, but I pray they would flourish. I pray that you would use them to change the world by becoming a fire hydrant of grace and love into a dry and parched world that desperately needs something more than what social media sells, what advertising sells, Help us to understand that you are the only stream where we find the living waters. God, I pray that as we move into a time of invitation, you would stir our hearts, you would come and quench our thirst as never before. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. I know it's a little longer message than usual, and you got graduation parties. I know Lily and things to get to, but... Uh, this is important stuff. If the Lord's moving in your heart today, don't hinder him. Don't ignore it. Uh, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's no better time to do so than right now. I'll be here at the front during our invitation time to talk to you about what that looks like. 
If you wanna join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of what God's doing here, we believe in church membership, that you can be a part of this body that's not perfect by any means. We are all broken and desperately in need of Jesus Christ together, and so are you. And we'd love to have you come and join us and be a part of this journey that we're on. If you just wanna come pray with somebody, uh, Trey and Brad, if you'll come, Jan, if, if you'll come as well. If you wanna pray with one of our prayer warriors here at the front, if you need healing, if you just have a problem at work or problem with a family member and you just wanna pray with somebody, come uh, forward and pray with them or just pray at the altar, it'll be open as well. We're gonna sing Ron Lannis' favorite song. We're gonna sing, uh, where's Ron? There he is, he always plays this at staff meeting. The more I seek you, the more I find you. Let's stand and sing.